privilege to have these distinguished gentlemen at the table. Uh, you know, we're going with the letter D today. I don't know about you, but the letter D is just a wonderful letter um, because both of our guests, <laughs> they have, wait a minute, I have a D too. So I, I believe I'm in good company. I'm in good company. <laughs> so we have with us all the way, all the way from Canada, Dr. David Bert. He is an immunologist. He has 30 years of research experience uh, in, in vaccines. He's written articles that are peer reviewed. Both of them have done that. Um, and, and he's doing some marvelous work there in, in Canada, even in abroad. Um, right now, um, Dr. David Burt, he's also, he also received um, the African Canadian Achievement Award in 1997. And um, he is now a member of the City of Toronto's Black Scientist Task Force on awesome. vaccine equity. So he's very knowledgeable. And the best thing about Dr. David Burt is that he loves the Lord. So Come I think that's, that's, yeah. that's a good thing. And then we have with us, and I, I, I got to make sure that I do it right. Um, this is a, one of our very own. Now, I know, Dr. David Burt, you're our very own as well. But this individual is right around the corner from my church. So I, there's just a special, a special connection that I have with this individual. And that's Dr. David Sinclair. Um, he came, uh, we had an outdoor church. And he came, I think it was all the way back in uh, October, I believe, did a great job. He now serves as the chief medical officer of the Altamont Springs Advent Health um, uh, hospital there. And, uh, you know, he's done peer review articles already. He's uh, right now currently, and what really, as I talk with him and, and um, just kind of just let them know what, what the program is about. And both doctors have the same experience. Um, they have already had conferences and meetings and talking to different people in their department, like Dr. St. Clair, he goes around to the different, as the chief uh, medical officer there, he goes around to the different departments and he educates them on the vaccine. And so wow. just wow. privileged to have this great man of God with us. By the way, on my church, we have a WhatsApp, a WhatsApp um, thread and um, I got a message. Actually, somebody texted me from my church and said, hey, please join the Pastors Roundtable because our very own Dr. St. Clair is on. <laughs> so so awesome. again, uh, just privilege to have both of you gentlemen on. Listen, and um, I, I just believe it's going to be a good conversation today. It is. Before we bring them on, I just want you to know, as we were prepping and taking care of, they know each other. They, oh, they wow. know each other, man. I, and maybe they could tell us more about it as we bring them on here today. But it is such a privilege to have uh, David and David. Come on now. Dr. David Sinclair <laughs> and Dr. David Bird with us today. Yes. Pastor Paul, yes, yes. you know what you do. You do it so well. Hey, listen, listen, listen. We kind of gave the, the brief thing, but we're going to give each of you just a few moments to just share with the audience anything that you want them to know that we did not cover uh, in that little brief intro. We know both of you have resumes that could go on and on and on because God has blessed you so, so much. But listen, if, if there's, I, you can do whatever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give each of you uh, 
45.7 seconds um, to, to be able to greet anybody. You might want to say hello to mom, say hello to the folk, uh, tell us something about yourself. Um, we're going to start with you, uh, Dr. Sinclair, um, and the time is yours right now. Thank you. As uh, Dr. Henry mentioned, I'm the Chief Medical Officer and Vice President here at uh, Advent Health Altamont Hospital. Been here about a year. Uh, I think the most important thing is that I, I'm passionate about vaccine hesitancy and addressing the concerns that our African-American and our Hispanic communities have as it relates to um, hesitancy with the current uh, round of vaccines. It's really important for us to, to know that in order to get a, you know, control of this pandemic and allow us to resume back to our normal lives where in person we can actually see people's smiles, see their teeth again, uh, engage in good uh, conversation that we really need uh, to uh, arrive at that point of herd immunity and address the concerns that folks have about vaccines. So I'm more than happy to be here. I spent 10 or 15 years down at the University of Miami as the Chief uh, Quality and Safety Officer for the health system. Um, and God brought me, I believe, here to the Central Florida Division uh, at, at Advent Health, Altamont specifically, um, to be a resource to the community. So I thank you, Dr. Henry, for this opportunity, and I look forward to being of service to you all. Excellent. Awesome, awesome. Dr. Burt, you've got, uh, your time is yours. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I must start by saying Dr. Sinclair is also one of us in Canada because he grew up in Canada. Oh, <laughs> so, that's, that's right. him. so we have to share him. <laughs> True. I think it was mentioned already that um, I'm, act I'm actually doing consulting work now. I'm sort of semi-retired, um, but I've really um, been blessed by being part of this Black Scientist Task Force on Vaccine Equity in Toronto. Um, just like the situation in the States, there's a lot of hesitancy amongst our people here. And, um, you know, vaccine hesitancy, it's a worldwide issue. The WHO says that it's one of the most pressing um, problems in the health environment today that we have. And um, one of the things I hear from the community in terms of why they're hesitant is because although they're in Canada, they know and remember about some of the, the injustices that have occurred, like the Tuskegee wow. experiment in the US, and other examples where access to disease-preventing medicines were denied to the black community. And that was also with the knowledge of the government in many cases. So this is one of the areas that we are trying to help our community with. Um, and we want to engage them. We hope they can trust us because the, the group I'm with, it's made up of black scientists, doctors, health professionals, um, health equity experts. And we want to be able to engage our community in a scientific and a culturally sensitive way. So I'm really pleased to be part of that and really pleased to be able to share with some of the information with you and with David and, um, and viewers today. All right, all right, all right. And uh, we wanna definitely get started with a word of prayer. Before we pray, listen uh, to our viewers. Hey, this is the time to ask some questions as well. Uh, we, of course, we still we have some, but you just look on the chat. Just, just go for it. 
and uh, and we'll we'll try to see what we can do by honoring some of those questions. But we want to pray. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. You've given us a platform where we can discuss these relevant issues. We ask God that as we begin our discussion, that you will just guide us, uh, help us to understand the situation at hand, and help us to act accordingly in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, I, you know, I guess, I guess I'm gonna go first. <laughs> All right. Well, again, um, we're talking about this vaccine, and first of all, um, you know, this this vaccine is out there, and there are many questions about it. And I'm just gonna start off: How effective is this vaccine? How really effective is this vaccine? I'll give it to Dr. Burt first. I, I, Dr. Henry, I, I want to know, I don't know which vaccine you're talking about. I, I, from what I hear, yeah, there's like any of them are out there. So I want to know. That's how, right. How, we got how, Pfizer, we got Moderna, we got Johnson & Johnson doing something here. Yeah. So, hey, well, yeah. hey, listen, we're talking to the experts now. How effective is a vaccine and which one seems to be more effective um, than others? Okay. The, the um, in fact, there are over 200 vaccines in development if you really want to know, but the ones that have been authorized for use in the US and Canada, um, we're talking about the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, which are both messenger RNA vaccines. And also we have the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a DNA vaccine. And, you know, I've worked in the, the vaccine industry for over 30 years, and these vaccines are, to me, they're miracles because they're 90% protective in terms of Moderna and in terms of um, Pfizer and 90% or more. I mean, that's, that's an amazing percentage in terms of protection. Wow. And um, the AstraZeneca, it's slightly less. I think it's around 70% protective. But when you remember that initially the FDA, they were looking for a safe vaccine, but also a vaccine that could protect by at least 50%. These vaccines have superseded that, um, that criteria. And so these vaccines are very, very effective. And um, I, think, I, think, I think they're miracles because people think they've been made very rapidly, but a, large, a, a number of the larger companies also had vaccines in these trials for COVID and their vaccines didn't work so it's not a, a slam dunk that a vaccine is going to work, but a vaccine that works and protects at least against disease by 95%, I mean, that's amazing. If I can just add to that, uh, thanks, Dr. Burke. I, I, I agree. The Moderna as well as the Pfizer vaccines, both are roughly 95% effective in reducing moderate and severe COVID infection that obviously, as Dr. Burke mentioned, exceeds the 50% threshold that the Food and Drug Administration set. We have, as I was mentioned, uh, you know, Dr. Paul mentioned Johnson & Johnson, they just applied for emergency use authorization this past Thursday, and we probably won't see the Johnson & Johnson vaccine until next month uh, throughout the summer. Their effectiveness in the United States, the vaccine effectiveness to prevent moderate and severe disease is about 72 percent 
and it varies depending on the region of the country. But with that level of, of, of efficacy in reducing moderate and se severe disease, the goal really is to have control of coronavirus to the point that it does not require hospitalization. With mild disease, you do not need to be in the hospital. Um, some with moderate disease are in the United States managed at home. And that really is the goal for us to get to the point where you no longer need to be hospitalized with moderate or severe COVID disease. And these vaccines, the current ones, Pfizer and Moderna, are shown to be 95% effective in reducing moderate and severe disease. That's very important. For those of you that anticipate having elective outpatient surgery, you may not be having that surgery now in the United States because we don't have the capacity in the hospital. So to the extent that we can have COVID infection be simply or predominantly mild with you monitored at home, that allows for capacity within the hospital so that we can provide other, other important acute care that you need. So the effectiveness, I know the question was about effectiveness, but the real impact is to allow for capacity in the hospital so that you can get the services you need, as well as for you to simply have moderate disease, which you could really monitor at home, the fever, the aches, and over a set five to seven day period, really get to the point where uh, you no longer need to be, uh, feel as sick as you did when you acquired, acquired the infection. So that's really the goal and the take-home message about the effectiveness. Interestingly enough, uh, one of our viewers um, asked about uh, that. You know, I put this, the, um, the 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 post Question. up. They're talking about it being a layer of protection and cannot really prevent the virus from spreading. And brought back the same thing we've been talking about: masks, social distancing. So I I, I wanted us to kind of just take a, a quick moment here from you. Um, are, once you get the vaccine, are those things still needed? M mask and social distancing yeah. and those things? Yeah. Your viewer is, is totally correct because vaccines are one of the layers of protection that's, that we have in, in the arsenal. Every layer, mask wearing, social distancing, even vaccines, they're not perfect. I mean, even a 95% protective vaccine means that 5%, maybe 10% of individuals might still get an infection or might still become ill. So I would say until most of the population has been vaccinated and has an immune response that's protective, we need to still use those other layers. So we still mm -hmm. need to mask, we still need to social distance, and we still need to ensure that we're protecting ourselves in as many ways as we can. And I think also we have to remember that there are new variants coming out, um, new variants of the virus coming out. Um, the vaccines at the moment seem to be able to um, neutralize, at least in, in the test tube, neutralize these variants. But some of the field studies have suggested that the vaccines may not be as effective um, against, for instance, the, the South African variant or the UK variant, which are now in North America. So even though you've been vaccinated against um, the original, you need to protect yourself um, 
until everyone is immune for a number of reasons. I, you know, I've got a follow up to uh, I think Dr. Henry's original question in terms of the effectiveness of the of the vaccine. So we've said around ninety percent for one, and I don't remember exactly what the other. But what is that compared to some of the vaccines that we're more familiar with, like polio or measles or mumps? How effective are those in comparison to this one? Let me let me take a, a stab at that one. We can certainly talk about the vaccine for flu that. Uh, some of our employers make mandatory uh, each year as a condition for employment. You'd be surprised if you looked at the vaccine effectiveness of the flu vaccine. Depending on your age, it can vary from as low as 30% to as high as maybe the low 50% in terms Whoa. of hmm. efficacy. You can go to the CDC website and enter... Uh, flu vaccine efficacy, and you can pull up a spreadsheet that will show you the effectiveness based on age for the 2018, 2019 um, uh, flu vaccine. And you can see over the course of years what that efficacy was like. And I believe that is what the Food and Drug Administration used as their standard to say that when we grant emergency use in this pandemic to any vaccine manufacturer, we at least need 50% vaccine effectiveness. And that is where we are today with the flu vaccine that many of us uh, received during the flu season. So when mm. we talk about Pfizer and Moderna having vaccine efficacy of 95% after the two doses and Johnson & Johnson in their application, 72% vaccine effectiveness after their single dose vaccine this is, this is, these are game changers in terms of getting control of the pandemic and also being much more effective than what we know to be the, um, the flu vaccine. Let's just say, again, the measles vaccine does not mutate to the extent that the coronavirus, which is the type of virus, um, obviously, that the coronavirus 19 is, does not mutate to the same extent. So we obviously need those, uh, at least for the flu, annual vaccines because of the mutations and the changes. So the measles vaccine is more stable. You get that MMR vaccine of which measles is part, and it's more stable. You don't have to get that, obviously, annually. But we are expecting that there will be the need at some point to have a booster, have some form of keeping our our immunity uh, in place as the vaccines even mutate on an annual basis. Mm. MMR, that's mumps, uh, measles, uh, and, and, um, mumps measles, and uh, radish, right? I got a question for you, um, just kind of, you know, talking about the effectiveness. Um, you mentioned mRNA, um, and I know that, you know, in your uh, discussions with you know, different people regarding the vaccine, there is a fear that this vaccine will change your DNA. I mean, I, you know, that's, can you, can you just address that and, and the relationship between the mRNA, this new method and the, um, the DNA and altering your DNA? You know, some people have that question. <laughs> that's a very common fear that um, people have. And I, I think they conflate these vaccines with, with genetic engineering, with creating genetically modified crops. But these vaccines are totally different. 
Now, we have DNA in our cells in, in, the chroma, um, in the nucleus compartments. And normally, when our cells want to make um, proteins, DNA is, if you consider it as, um, it's like a read-only um, file that has all of the, the code and the recipes for our proteins, RNA um, is almost like a um, photocopy of that's read-only. And RNA actually is the um, form of the code from which our proteins are made. Now, the vaccines that Moderna and Pfizer have, they're made of a small, basically the main ingredient is a small piece of RNA, of code, that codes for the S protein on the, um, on the coronavirus, the spike protein. So basically, the RNA is administered to you. Your cells will actually recognize the code, make the S protein, and then the immune system will say that's foreign and you'll get an immune response. mRNA in that form mm -hmm. cannot integrate into, into our DNA. And in fact, most viruses, whether they're DNA or RNA, they haven't got that ability to um, integrate their genetic material into ours. Can you imagine we, we're infected with hundreds of different viruses, we're exposed to viruses, we get sick because of flu, etc. It's an RNA virus, but none of that genetic material can get into, that, into our DNA. But there, is, there are some viruses that can do that, and they're really dangerous. They're called um, retroviruses. And mm. one of the retroviruses is HIV. Oh, wow. And that virus can get its genetic material into our DNA because it's an RNA virus, but it has an enzyme that can convert the RNA. It's called, um, it can convert the RNA into DNA, and it can integrate the DNA into the genome that we have. So that's why it's so Ooh. dangerous. But most viruses can't do that. And definitely the small piece of RNA that is in, in the um, Moderna or Pfizer vaccine, they haven't got those enzymes. Um, the enzyme is reverse, trans sorry, reverse transcriptase that converts RNA to DNA and then um, integrase. HIV has that. None of the viruses that we're infected with or exposed to have that, and the, the vaccines definitely don't have that. So the answer, in short, is no. The, the way, if I can just add to that, Dr. Burke, that I see it, our DNA is essential. It sits within the nucleus. And in order for it to do its job, which is to create proteins so that you and I can live, it needs to send out a message. So the way I picture this, there's a recipe book in your kitchen in a drawer that has recipes for desserts. Some cookies, uh, mm -hmm. some are cakes, some are tarts. And in order to make cookies, you need to go in that drawer, which is the nucleus. And in that drawer in your kitchen, there's a book that has multiple recipes about desserts. You need the photocopy, the chocolate cake. Mm. That is the mRNA. The photocopy of the chocolate cake page is the mRNA. But you cannot make the cake in the drawer. 
So you need to take that photocopy into the kitchen and actually make the cake, like making the protein, making the protein that the coronavirus needs to enter in, attached to your cell. So the mRNA mm. is actually the instructions. It's a photocopy of the DNA portion that is needed to make the protein. In and of itself, it cannot get in the drawer and go back in the recipe book. So the mRNA cannot re-enter DNA. They're in two different parts of the kitchen. One is in the drawer and the other is in the active open part of the kitchen around the oven. And the mRNA, the recipe does not go back into the drawer. It is incapable of doing that. It actually gets dissolved after you make the cake. So the idea mm -hmm. that somehow the mRNA is changing your DNA, biochemically, it can't. Mm. Um, so the, mm. I just wanted to give that analogy because it helps understand what is actually being injected with this vaccine. It's actually a photocopy of instructions. It's the recipe of how to make the part of the coronavirus um, that attaches to your cell so that it can enter. Um, it, the instructions themselves cannot re-enter the recipe book. They cannot enter your DNA and change the recipes of, about uh, cakes and cookies and tarts. I hope that illustration helps. Uh, the, il the illustration uh, really makes it uh, I mean, I could really put together, you know, once you said chalk the cake, I was right there with you. <laughs> but uh, uh, the illustration really helps. Uh, Donna had a question earlier about um, um, the age, about being tested positive and being vaccinated. Is, you know, is it true that a person um, who survived coronavirus and is over 65 has to wait before she can be given the um, vaccine? Is, there, is that something? Is that true? So the Center for Disease Control um, has really put out guidelines as to the reasons for which we should delay administration of the vaccine. Mm. And there's mm. either delay or not administer it at all. And there's, it falls into four big categories. Uh, let me just quickly touch on when not to administer it. That's if between the first and the second dose, you receive a first dose, and you have an anaphylactic reaction, meaning swelling in your throat, tingling of your tongue, a whole anaphylaxis react, reaction to that first vaccine, you should not receive the second. And it's exceedingly rare to have an anaphylactic reaction. We're not talking about just an allergic, not a, a what should I say, symptoms, side effects, headache, muscle aches, uh, joint pain, a fever. We're not talking about that. This is anaphylaxis. Within minutes of receiving that first vaccine, you are unable to breathe, your airway is closing, your heart rate is up. Then it is contraindicated to receive the second dose. So that aside, to your question, the only other categories in which there are, there are three main categories in which you should really delay the decision to have the second dose or to even have the first dose. That is, if you've had corona infection, you must recover from the, the infection, typically seven to 10 days after you have um, had the infection. If you're asymptomatic, it's 10 days. 
after you tested positive but had no symptoms, or if you actually had symptoms, then you have to wait three days without fever, without symptoms, without taking Tylenol before you're even a candidate for a, 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 the vaccine. And that's typically 10 days after you first became symptomatic. So with an acute, with an infection of COVID, you are to wait at least three days after all your symptoms are completely resolved, which typically is about 10 days after a mild to moderate infection uh, symptoms began. The other categories are if you've received any of the monoclonal antibodies in this country, that would be bamlinivimab made and others made by Eli Lilly and a couple other um, uh, Regeneron. If you received as an outpatient any monoclonal antibodies, these are actually antibodies. And what your body makes from the vaccine are antibodies. So in the abundance of caution, the CDC says if you receive monoclonal antibodies to prevent severe COVID at any of the infusion centers, it's usually given over an hour, they monitor you for an hour. If you were given monoclonal antibodies, then you really should wait 90 days before receiving a COVID vaccine. Similarly, if you were actually in the hospital and treated with convalescent plasma in the intensive care unit or in the hospital, that plasma from folks who actually had the infection and were using it to using those antibodies from someone else to help boost your antibody response, once you've recovered and been discharged from the hospital, you too should wait 90 days because you've received antibodies in the plasma. To go back to your original question about COVID infection specifically, you must recover from the COVID infection, which is typically 10 days after you first had symptoms and at least three days after complete resolution of your symptoms, meaning I'm not taking Tylenol for muscle aches, fevers or anything else, and the doctor has told me that I am recovered and safe to actually go back to work and so on, then you can consider um, the, and should consider uh, the vaccine. Awesome, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. I, I know our, our, our viewers, are, they're, they're dropping all kinds of questions in the chat. I mean, totally took <laughs> us off script on this one. I wanna get to their questions because they're the ones that we're here. One, one of them asked, uh, Lorraine Blake is asking, to uh, just share a little bit about herd immunity. You know, that's something that we heard in the news, that that is what we need to do as opposed to doing the virus. Yeah. Can, can either, yeah, Dr. I'll, Bird, can you share anything with that? Yeah, sure. Um, herd immunity is the, the idea that, and it's, it's a proven one, that um, in order to ensure that the, the virus has a limited ability to spread, you need to make sure that a certain percentage of the population has immunity against that virus. And I know that some individuals, um, when, when the pandemic started, they were saying, you know, let's, let's let, 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 the, let, let the pandemic just, let it, let, let it just take its natural course. <laughs> yeah. Because um, we'll have herd immunity. Most people would be infected and then the virus won't have anywhere else to go. 
that, that's good, but most people will be infected, but many people would be dead at this time. So herd immunity is a concept that really can only be um, obtained and reached when you have a vaccine, you get a vaccine, people are protected, but normally, and it depends on how effective the vaccine is. Um, I think Dr. Fauci and others are saying that um, because these vaccines are so effective, then we only need to reach about 85% of the population to have been um, vaccinated and to have reached um, a significant um, level of immunity to reach that point where it's gonna be very difficult for the virus to spread because there are very few people um, who haven't got that immunity. So that's herd immunity. It's, it's um, a level of protection in the community that protects individuals. There's some individuals who might not be able to take the vaccine, I think, Dr. Um, Sinclair, David Sinclair mentioned some individuals who have strong anaphylactic responses, for instance, and there may be in, in people who are very immunodeficient. You really need to protect a vulnerable part of society. And now at the moment, actually, these vaccines aren't meant for individuals under 16 at the moment. So again, we, you want to protect a certain population that can't be vaccinated. But when you get to a certain level of herd immunity, then the virus, it's a very difficult virus to spread because there's, there isn't much, there aren't many naive or non-immune individuals left for it to, mm. to attack and to spread. That's basically the concept. Okay. Wow. And I, I like the fact, uh, Dr. Bird, that you do mention that it is the concept that we either achieve that 70% um, herd immunity either by natural infection where we acquire the antibodies through an actual infection, or the reason for today's talk is that we achieve that 70% within the community by the majority of us actually receiving the vaccine um, and thereby having the immunity um, that we would otherwise um, take the risk of, of surviving through a natural infection. Um, and essentially what happens is the, 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 the virus runs out of people to severely infect and becomes uh, less of a consequence. And that really is the goal. It will not eliminate COVID. It just makes it much more difficult for it to find a, an individual for, with whom to infect. Every, every oh. time, I, I, you know, just so that we can get back on track, Everton uh, has asked, he shared a case of a lady uh, getting palsy from taking the vaccine. The question is really this. If you take the vaccine, can you get COVID-19? Yes. The vaccine is 95% effective in preventing severe and moderate infection. So you can still, after being vaccinated, be infected by COVID-19, presumably, the infection will be mild. That is after you've received with the current um, uh, uh, manufacturers or uh, what's available, Pfizer or Moderna, um, within days following the second dose or within weeks, you are maximally uh, protected, but you can still um, be infected by coronavirus and it would presumably or most likely be a mild infection. So that really is that we have to understand that that is the goal with vaccination 
The goal is so that this coronavirus, there are other coronaviruses that cause mild colds every single year that we, um, that we uh, are inflicted by. Those are coronaviruses as well. The goal really conceptually is to have this pandemic be nothing worse than a simple cold. So in order for that to happen, we have to eliminate the severe and the moderate um, elements of corona infection. Uh, and, and once the, the, the virus is still um, among us and still contagious, that it is a mild infection that does not lead to the damage in people's lives and the economy and everything else that it, that it truly has. A, a twist to this question, because I've heard similar questions, for instance, can I get infected from the vaccine? Can the COVID vaccine actually infect me? And maybe, maybe, this, is, maybe this will come up later, or maybe this was part of the reason that this question was asked, but uh, the answer is no, because the, the vaccine has the code just for one of the surface proteins, like the coat, and a, maybe you can think of a button on the coat, if you want an analogy. And that's just a, a part of the the viral structure that the immune response, the antibodies will recognize and then prevent the virus from getting into the cell. It hasn't, the, 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 the RNA or DNA code doesn't encode for the whole virus, only for a piece of protein that cannot infect you, cannot produce an infectious particle. Just in case that question comes up, because I know sometimes that's asked. And that question, I think probably it's on a lot of people's minds when we think about, can I get an infection? Can I get COVID from the vaccine? This is not like the majority of vaccines that we receive where they actually inject either, uh, they call it attenuated or a, an actual virus that is not live. So it cannot uh, infect, but it can result in you creating antibodies. This is not a, a live vaccine. It is, it is not an attenuated uh, virus. It is not a weakened virus, as some of the other manufacturers that, that we will talk about later are, that are coming online are. There's no viral um, component in the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. It has the genetic material but they are, it is not a virus. It is not a live virus. It is not an inactive virus. It is not an attenuated virus. You are not being injected with a virus. And I think that is, that is important to know. And that's what actually makes it safe to use in severely immunocompromised people who are wow. receiving chemotherapy and others because there's no viral component. There's, there's not an inactive or weakened or attenuated virus in the currently available vaccines that are being used. That message has to, be, has to be clear. And do you suspect that that will remain true throughout all of the other 200 or so you said that we're still in development or some, no. will some of them differ on that point? No, there, there, are, there are a number of different technologies being used for the COVID, um, this COVID challenge that we have. Um, some are based on older technology, as David said, using um, the whole virus that's been um, attenuated or inactivated so it doesn't cause disease. Um, there are others that are using the actual protein itself. Um, mm. So the protein has been expressed, purified, 
and the S protein is given as a conventional um, vaccine, just like the hepatitis B vaccine. Um, so there are different technologies that are coming along and some will be suitable for some individuals depending on their health status and others um, will be suitable for another part of the population. No. So um, at the moment, um, there is a DNA vaccine which is delivered. This is the um, AstraZeneca. It's delivered by um, an adenovirus. And um, I, I guess depending on your, your health status, again, this might not because it's, it's, it's again, it's attenuated, but it can infect and deliver the DNA. And I guess David will probably know better than me because he's an MD, but um, depending on your immune status, um, you'd probably have to have a, a, a chat with your, um, with your physician. Because I know in Canada, um, certain lupus patients, um, it's not recommended that you get the, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine just because it's, it's a viral infection. Mild, but it's delivering the DNA in the form of a virus. So you need to talk to your MD around, around those issues. Got it. Got very, it. very good and very clear point, Dr. Burke, that I really want to drill home. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are based on adenovirus. They've weakened a virus that in normal situations would cause a cold or would cause gastroenteritis or cause uh, an infection with the body, within the body. They've weakened and made those viruses inactive, but they are the vehicle through which material can be injected into an individual safely and elicit a response. The Moderna and Pfizer vaccines do not have any viral components whatsoever. So you cannot develop coronavirus. It is safe for immunocompromised individuals because what we talked about this what is actually being injected in the in the vaccine instructions mm -hmm. it's 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 a how-to document um and i think that component leaves folks feeling concerned about trickery or something but it mm -hmm. actually is behind its safety profile there are no preservatives in the moderna and pfizer vaccine um, there are no egg components, so if you're allergic to eggs, it's not a contraindication to Moderna or Pfizer. If you have lactose intolerant or you're allergic to pollen, there are no preservatives of any kind in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And at Advent Health, we vaccinated over 3,000 individuals, sorry, 35,000 in, in a period of weeks. This past week at our Altamont Hospital, we vaccinated a thousand employees and community members. And I spoke to many of those, had long lists of allergies and other concerns. And the safety profile of Moderna and Pfizer is shocking. It's, it's actually very safe in, in, in normal use uh, for the general public, as well as healthcare workers, first responders and others. We're gonna to try to get to some more of these questions here. One of them that has been coming up uh, repetitively uh, through the chat, and I, I hear it you know, in, in, in the real world here, is that, and, and this is, I, they gave me the juicy question, because um, this, this has a political overtone to it. It has uh, a whole lot of uh, uh, conspiracy overtone to it. All of that is built into this question. We have seen um, 
this, uh, somebody, I think Dr. Paul, Dr. Anthony Paul put up in the chat a little earlier, it normally takes between five and 10 years for other vaccines to simply get approved. This one, because um, I, I'm, not, I'm not even gonna go there. I'm saying this one got approved very quickly um, um, because it had a lot of push and political, uh, and that's what that's what's making people a little anxious. How did this one get approved so quickly? Um, was I'm gonna just say it. Was this the Donald? Did the Donald get this one through because of his political prowess and his reach and his pull? Um, or, or, or was there something in the science that made the development of this vaccine different than any of the others that have taken so long to get approved to uh, be for public use? No, it wasn't the Don. It was, it was a group of scientists who have been working on DNA type vaccines, RNA type vaccines for 15 to 20 years, and a group of scientists that have been working on ways to encapsulate um, these genetic codes in a way that protects them so that you can um, get an immune response. So if, if, you, if you look at, at the normal research and development cycle for a vaccine, it might take five to 10, maybe five years to do the animal studies. So you need to test these in animals first, obviously before they go to humans. And then you have to do safety studies in, in animals. These are done in a very strict and um, high quality way to make sure that they're safe. You give doses in animals that are higher than what you give in humans. Now, these studies normally would take four or five years to do. And then you've got the clinical studies that follow on after that phase one in a small group of individuals to make sure you've got the dose right and it's safe. Phase two, where you increase the numbers and you get an idea of whether you're getting the right immune response. And phase three, where you're testing it against the disease with large numbers. Okay, 10 to 15 years. But because a lot of the groundwork had already been done with the RNA and the DNA vaccines, we've been able to reduce that time, that five years, really into a few months. And this is because, for instance, the mRNA vaccines, I mean, I remember in the 90s going to a conference and hearing about the potential, hearing about some animal studies where they were using DNA and RNA. This was in the 90s. Since then, um, we know that, for instance, the NIH, um, Dr. Corbett, Kizzy Corbett, who's, you know, um, a black woman who's had a large um, input into this research, she was applying the same technology that we use now to SARS, coronavirus that came around in 2002, and especially to the Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome virus, MERS, a few years ago. So she's been able to do a lot of the groundwork. And part of that included making sure that the S protein could be produced by the um, RNA or DNA in a form that would make it compatible with getting a good immune response. That work was done a few years ago. And so what's happened is that all of that work, that package has been applied to um, 
the, the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. So all of that work was done already. And because that work was done and the regulatory authorities know that it was pretty safe, for instance, the DNA vaccine that Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca uses, that has been licensed in Africa for Ebola. So that's been used already. So they know that these vaccines are pretty safe. They already knew that. So that, that has helped the development process because, because of that, the uh, regulatory authorities have allowed certain animal studies and phase one of the human studies to happen in parallel, to move it along. And it's amazing because from the time it took to get the genetic code for the S protein, when it was released in January, to getting the first vaccine into humans at the NIH was 41 days, I understand. It was so rapid, 41 days. So a lot of things have been able to happen in parallel because a lot of the groundwork was done already. And also there's a political will. I mean, there's a lot of collaboration going on between different companies because we're in a pandemic, it's an emergency. and so. There's been a, a, a rush, not bypassing any safety concerns, because these vaccines we already discussed are as safe as any other vaccines that we've had in the past, and they're effective. And I think it's it's it just shows what can happen when there's collaboration. And the final point is there hasn't been a shortage of volunteers for the clinical studies because of the urgency um, and because the fact that everyone in every community is impacted. Uh, it's a long answer to the question, but these are some of the reasons why um, the, the perceived speed is shocking to some, but it's, not, it's, not, it's really a perceived speed because this groundwork has been done and has, has been proven a number of years ago. Well, I, you know what, I, I've been um, just looking on the chat and I mean, they're just <laughs> asking a whole lot of questions, a lot of dialogue going on on this chat. And my phone, the people are texting me on my phone as well. You too? So I've we, been getting questions yeah. on my phone too. <laughs> can, I, yeah. can I just it add is. a little bit? Yeah, go can ahead. Can I just add to what Dr. Bird yes, mentioned yes. about speed? Yes. And, I, and I took a look at some of the comments. You know, it's not about speed and, and so on. And it's true. And I'm glad Dr. Bird outlined that for the last um, three or four decades, this technology had been in development and coronavirus really put it on a scale that was much larger than other uses for mRNA technology for managing and for treating in smaller studies, uh, prostate cancer and lung cancer. Um, so we've used this in humans before. It's not just in primates and in rats. Um, it's been used as a technology in people and none of us have read about uh, people growing, you know, uh, people being adversely affected by this technology. But I will give it to those that have concerns that the scale at which it is now being used on a global scale is, is enough to cause a, a concern. Two things I will say, when you are not talking about mRNA vaccines, but you're talking about those that are based on viruses to adenovirus to get the material into you, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson. You actually have to, and Dr. Berg knows this more than I do, you have to grow these viruses and inactivate them and then prepare them for injection into individuals. 
with the mRNA vaccine, because you do not need the, the virus, an adenovirus as the vector, you no longer need to harvest and grow almost like a large farm of viruses in which to use. You can do it with, with simply having an adjustment or a change in the code, very quickly make changes in what is administered. And when we, as, as Dr. Berg mentioned, when, we, when the, the code was actually shared from Wuhan, China to BioNTech in Germany, and they collaborated with Moderna in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we were very quickly able to do this because you didn't need to harvest viruses, adenovirus, and weaken them and inactivate them. It was something that we could do very quickly. And finally, I would say, as we're looking at genetic um, aberrations that affect predominantly African-Americans, sickle cell anemia, and others, there's a lot of promise behind this technology. And I understand this might not be well-received as, uh-oh, here comes another but we have, to, we have to consider what this technology means. Now that we are utilizing mRNA technology on a global scale, that it is not used to target people, it's actually used to, to create and provide for healthy communities, our communities included. So I'll, I'll just stop with that statement. Uh, let, let me ask just a few questions. Um, Dr. Sinclair, at the hospital, I know you said that uh, about 3,000 or so people um, received the vaccine. I think I heard you say that. Uh, 35,000. 35,000. Okay, 35,000. Do you do you know the hospital admission rate before um, the vaccine and after? Is it too early to, to even get those numbers? Yeah, it's actually too early to get those numbers. And clearly those that we vaccinate um, may be hospitalized, not only at our hospital, but... Um, but we have clearly seen within the last two weeks a reduction in the, in the hospitalization rate at Altamont as well as throughout Central Florida um, as the impact of Christmas and New Year's uh, subsided. And as we continue to stress wearing the mask and social distancing and hand washing, um, we've clearly seen a reduction in the hospitalizations. However, we still have patients in our intensive care unit who are very ill from COVID. And, you know, that goes along with, with uh, mortality in some instances. Um, so it is something that we still have on our radar, even as our hospitalization rates have come down. The severity and the acuity is still quite high. Okay. Yeah, Dr. Henry, um, can, I, can I follow up with that, Dr. Henry? Because I've seen yes. a whole lot of people ask this question as well, and I wish I could remember exactly who, um, but I, it's come several times. And, and it's in regards to um, and I think, Dr. Sinclair, you, you touched on it earlier, but the duration of how long does the immunization, is it good for? Um, and, and not only that, but when we are seeing these various mutations of, of mm -hmm. the, the COVID-19, does that signal that the immunization that I get now, while it may protect me from this strain, is there going to need to be a, a new vaccine for some of these other strains that come along um, so that it just kind of negates? Yeah, I got immunized for this strain, but do I need another shot for, for the other one? What's your thoughts on that? So that's a great question. So I'll get to the booster question in a moment. Um, the, the first question that you, uh, let me answer the booster um, first, and then you'll, you'll remind me what the first um, 
portion of the question was. There is no indication now, actually I recall the first point, about the length of How immunity. Right. Right. Original studies suggested that in a natural infection, the antibodies provided immunity for up to three months. That was the original data. And that was following a natural infection, mild, moderate, or severe disease. Uh, you were looking at about three months of, of relative immunity. However, Pfizer and Moderna are still studying now how long the immunity lasts after these vaccines. Um, what we know is that the response, and it's not just antibodies, when we actually are vaccinated, we don't just develop antibodies to the protein that allows the virus to attach to our cells and enter our cells. We have a whole what's called cellular response. There are T cells, which are part of your immune system. There's a whole release of cytokines and other memory cells that remember this foreign body, remember this coronavirus and are part of that whole immune response. So to actually look at the degree of immunity is not just to look at the antibody response. They are Moderna and Pfizer studying the whole immune response. So even if antibody levels wane, the rest of your immune response, the cells that are part of that response, T cells and others, how long are they remembering the virus? So that's being studied. What we know is if you look at your plasma, which is where all of your cells circulate, if you look at your plasma after uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, it's a more robust response than after a natural infection. So perhaps it, it lasts longer than three months. I think the data is going to show that it lasts many more months beyond the three months. What we know about viruses as we are talking now is that they mutate. There's the uh, mutations of the UK variant and the South African variant. And so we know that this is a normal pattern as they realize, hold on, there aren't that many folks for me to infect anymore. Let me change in some way so that I'm more contagious, or if not only more contagious, more lethal when I'm actually you know, in creating an infection. It is normal for viruses to mutate. So I anticipate, and this is without any, I'm getting off of the, you know, the soapbox of all the information that's been shared. I'm anticipating that there will be the need for boosters. As viruses mutate and the new version becomes the, the predominant strain in the future. But to be very clear, there is no data currently to suggest that Moderna and Pfizer are unable to mount uh, an appropriate response to these variants. They are studying them as we speak, and there is suggestion that they are, they are protective against the variants as well. That's important for our listeners to hear and understand. Dr. David Burt, I want to ask a quick question. Um, I know that you know, you're doing uh, heavy work there in, in Toronto. Um, especially dealing with this uh, COVID-19 vaccine among the black community. Um, what, are, what are the responses or what's the response from the black community? Are they embracing um, the information that's given uh, regarding COVID-19? And do you see an increase in the amount of people that are willing to take it? Or 
are are they still in that um, area there where they are still questioning about this vaccine, just based on your experience? Yeah, um, really, the data, when we started this, this, um, this task force, one of the reasons we did it was because the, the data was showing that 34% of black Canadians, Torontonians, um, were suspicious of the vaccine. Um, and I think what worried us the most was that a lot of um, our people in healthcare, even, even nurses, um, people working in care homes, they, they were also suspicious. Um, and we've only just started to address, address their issues, but we, we basically targeted some of our town halls to discuss um, the, the vaccines and the risk benefits for taking the vaccines. And we, we're especially concerned about people working in healthcare because a lot of our people are working in the healthcare um, industry, if you say. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's really important for them to consider and to, and to get enough information so they can get an informed or make an informed decision about the vaccine. Yes, there's still a lot of apprehension um, but, you know, we hope that we can, um, because we're from the same community and we may have a bit more information um, than they have, we can help them to make informed decisions about, about the vaccine. But the hesitancy is, is, is clearly there and um, that, that's why it's so important for us to, to address, address it. Listen, listen um, just, just to piggyback off of that question, um, either either one of the doctors can answer this. There's been a lot of undercurrent of natural options for the um, for you know to help with the symptoms or maybe even help with the protection. Some folks feel that that information has not been given the, the light of day. Um, as doctors, and we know you're scientists, we know that you, you trust the science. Um, are there other natural things that people can use to help? Um, um, bring a layer of protection with the COVID-19? No one's going to like my answer and I'll never get invited back, I know, um, but uh, <laughs> wear your mask, social distance, and hand wash. I, I really do not want to um, to under... I want to overemphasize those points and not suggest that there that there are natural remedies that are as effective as the vaccines or can replace those precautions that the Center for Disease Control um, really uh, pushes and has scientific evidence to support. Um, I, I really want that to be, to be the message that I, I leave uh, today, that those precautions that we take are really important, even as vitamin C and other things have their place and their role. Ultimately, for us to achieve herd immunity and, and have coronavirus be nothing more than a bad cold, get vaccinated. And we need to continue until that point, wearing our masks, washing our hands, and being a cognizant of the distance that we have uh, with our uh, with our coworkers, with our friends, and and others, um, I'll let Dr. Wirtberg answer about natural remedies if uh, if he has a. 
<laughs> Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Um, and you know, I think I think it, it is correct that probably um, there isn't enough emphasis placed on maintaining a healthy lifestyle and the role that um, good health can can play in your ability to um, resist disease. Um, and you know, we know that there are natural substances that can actually um, help your immunity. Um, you know, we, we know that vitamin D and zinc are important, but none of these things, none of these natural products are able to um, protect you against um, infection with coronavirus. Um, some of them may help to relieve some symptoms, um, but the evidence isn't there. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence and a lot of these studies haven't been done um, in, a, in a rigorous scientific way where there are proper controls. So at this moment, the only solid scientific data that we have would endorse a particular um, way of protecting ourselves in addition to the mask wearing and the, um, the other layers of protection that we should use are vaccines. And we started the program by talking about how effective the vaccines were. The vaccines are effective, and it's not just in the clinical studies that these um, results have been shown. In Israel, they've vaccinated 61% of their population. And in real life um, application of the vaccines now, um, this is a Pfizer vaccine, they're showing that the Pfizer vaccine is 92% effective in the community, in, in the real life situation. So we're not just talking about data from clinical studies, we're talking about what's happening in the field. And this is the most reliable intervention that we have. And vaccines have been shown in the past to be the most important health measure that we have. And, you know, I, I always, I always um, wonder why, why it is that, say much about um, treatments, about drugs that treat diseases once they've started, but we've got a, this beautiful immune system that we can um, use to prevent disease. And, um, you know, it, get, it's, it gets a lot of, um, a lot of bad press. Um, but I agree with David, there isn't any evidence that anything natural can do what a vaccine can do. Doctor, I'd like to, I'd like to ask on that, um, because I, I know that, that that's that, that's the pushback often is that there's not a lot of evidence. Um, and I'm wondering, are there actually very many studies that, that actually are created to provide some evidence? Or is it just that nobody's doing it? And that's why there's no evidence. Because that's, that's it. We know that we're going to test some of the stuff in the pharmaceuticals because there's money in what they do. And there might not be that much money in, I don't know, in cabbage leaves or in, um, you know, some of the other more natural things. So is it, is it that the lack of evidence exists because there's lack of trials and studies? Or is it simply that there have been studies and they haven't found that they have been been uh, uh, been been beneficial? I th I think it's both. I think there there have been studies, but the, many of them haven't been performed. For instance, um, in in a way that you can say is 
uh, done with the right scientific rigor, sometimes without the sure. right controls. There's always a tendency to, to, to continue with what you know has worked in the past. Um, and, and vaccines have really um, achieved, I mean, smallpox has disappeared. Polio is nearly gone because of vaccination. So there's a, ten, a tendency to, to continue with um, the true and tried methods. Um, but I, I still think there's, I, see, I think there'll be more work done, I think because of, um, because of this pandemic. I think there'll be more work done on, on alternatives, but I, I think it's gonna be hard to beat um, the, the success that vaccines have had and the, 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 the impact that they've had. The immune system is, I mean, I'm so passionate about the immune system because as David said, it has a memory. I mean, it, it, it remembers what it's been exposed to and a natural product might just relieve the symptoms or give you a milder infection, but it's not gonna induce a memory so that when that pathogen comes back, you've got your T cells and your B cells waiting there to churn out antibodies and cytokines. I, I don't know, it's, it's just, for me, it's just an amazing system. God has given us his system to prevent disease, I believe, and I, I, th I think we should use it. If I can just uh, piggyback for just 15 seconds on a, a little bit of a different but related point as it relates to studies and the speed with which these vaccines um, were produced. In order to have those um, phase one, two, and three trials, you actually need to enroll volunteers in those studies. And in the midst of a pandemic, meaning there's a high prevalence of disease, identifying candidates who could be or eligible uh, participants in these studies is much greater than when you are not in a pandemic. So even as Pfizer and Moderna um, did not complete phase three, the third final trial, when they went to the Food and Drug Administration and said, hey, we're showing 95% effectiveness at this point. And even as Johnson & Johnson, who at the end of this month will have their hearing for their vaccine with tens of thousands of people around the globe who participated in this study, we would never have had this rate at which participants could be part of clinical studies to have findings early enough if we, didn't, if we weren't in the midst of a pandemic. So partly the fact that we're in a pandemic accelerated the rate at which we could get results. I'm sorry about that. Um, and I wanted that point to come out when we're talking about speed. Part of the speed was because we had a lot of participants in the midst of a pandemic. Sorry about that. Thank you. Just wanted to get that in for sure. Um, a quick, quick question here. I know our time is running, is running, and there's more questions. There's more. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to tell you more questions, but um, the audience is now, growing. <laughs> yeah, it's growing now. Here's the thing. From from a, I, I, I might be taking somebody's question here, but from a Christian perspective, <laughs> you know, we're, we are our brother's keeper, right? But suppose I decide and I say, you know what? I'm not taking the vaccine. I uh -oh. think it's harmful. I think wow. that the vaccine will do more damage than good. I'm not going to take it. And I'm going to encourage my members not to take it because this uh -oh. is not. In fact, there's even one country that says we're not going to take the vaccine until we're going to wait and see and how the people. 
<laughs> the people in Europe and the people in the United States are doing it. What would be your perspective on that approach? Most people who are infected by COVID are not hospitalized. They're actually at home, managed at home, most people. Of those that are hospitalized, 85% are at home. Of those that are hospitalized, actually, um, the majority of them are not in the intensive care unit. The majority of them actually are admitted in the hospital for anywhere from three to five days and are sent home to fully recover. It's the small percent that are actually in the intensive care unit and a smaller number of those who actually die, even though the numbers are high. Two million today have died from COVID globally. My point is, even if you are not in the intensive care unit or you do not have a list of, of other comorbidities or um, health conditions that put you at risk for actually dying from COVID, you still do not want to be infected by this virus because of the long haul effect, the chronic cough that 10% of people may have, the foggy memory that 10% may have, the tingling in the fingers that some may have, the loss of sense of taste or smell. Um, you don't want that, even if you had mild COVID. So I think we have a responsibility to take action as our bodies are the temple of Christ to educate us in these types of forms to make the wise decisions so that we can be healthy vessels. And I think the vaccine allows us to be healthy uh, vessels for use within our communities and for use by God. We have a responsibility for our colleagues as well, our, our neighbors. And Moderna's studies have shown that even as the vaccine is effective in reducing moderate and severe illness in those who are vaccinated, it actually reduces their ability to infect others by 60%. And that's after the first dose. They didn't study after the second. I would assume it's even higher. And that's from data that was submitted to the Food and Drug Administration. So even after your first dose of Moderna vaccine, you've reduced your ability to infect others. And that is being studied more fully, but the preliminary results show that. So by taking this action, you are being responsible to your neighbor. You are loving your neighbor as yourself, in my view. And I strongly, I'm not, I'm not paid any, any, by any of these companies. I believe in the health of our individuals, the health of our communities, and, and making the decision to be vaccinated prevent severe and, and moderate uh, COVID in you and reduces the likelihood that you would infect your family members and loved ones who may not have been vaccinated yet. Um, so it's an, important, it's an important step to make. And that's how I see it in, in, the, in a biblical worldview. Healthy vessel, responsible decision, loving my neighbor as myself and truly making a, a personal decision that impacts my neighbor. Just, just one quick point. In, in the UK, the, um, the, the South Asian, the Indian and Pakistani community, they have a task force of doctors and, and their, their message is, is this, if you had a chance to save someone's life, would you do it? And then the next screen says, you can if you vaccinate yourself, 
I think this is a powerful message. It's not just about us, it's about the community. And dare, dare I mention a biblical text in front of all these, um, these pastors? I'm going to anyway. Um, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Verse 4 says, Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. But that's a Christian, that's, that's a Christian um, not just us, it's others too. I've noticed also in the chat the question uh, Juanita had asked this question about, and, and there was another viewer that asked the same question that Juanita's asking. Is there a difference between the two? I think you mentioned a little bit about the the way the, um, the, the information is transmitted within the vaccines. And um, Pfizer has one, Moderna has a, Pfizer and Moderna has a different way of transition. Um, I think, but and you know to be honest with you and i always tell the people these questions i'm a preacher i'm not a doctor so i'm going with what you're sharing but but is there a difference between the two um the two the, the difference between the vaccines which one is better is there one better or you know what what should what should an individual do when given the opportunity to choose which one to take i would say that the decision should be made on which vaccine is readily available to you as soon as you can receive a vaccine. Why do I say that? Because I don't think it is wise to be shopping and thereby delaying your eventual uh, vaccination. The flow of vaccines is variable right now. I can tell you from a health system standpoint, We've set up the infrastructure and the systems in place to vaccinate thousands of people a a week, a day, frankly, at Advent Health. Um, But the rate at which those vaccines are coming is variable. Things have changed. Our our administration has changed. Um, The the strategies that the state is using is changing. They're moving from sort of hospitals to pharmacies and to publics. So if you sit back and wait, for your specific vaccine in October from AstraZeneca, it's just not a wise decision. But when through your local CVS in, in, in March or, in, in, or this month, if you have the availability and you're over the age of 65 to be vaccinated now with Moderna, you receive the Moderna vaccine. If your option is in April because you have no comorbidities, you're 35 years old, and your local Walgreens is the next available place and what they have is Johnson & Johnson, you go and receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I think the play the game is not going to be wise for your health, even though they are all very um, effective. Some stronger than others, as we've said, Moderna and Pfizer, they're very identical. They have a messenger RNA, and and in order for that messenger RNA, those instructions to enter your cell, they've wrapped it in in a, what they call it, lipid, or it's a fat layer, just so it can get through the cell, your cell, into the area where it actually makes proteins. They're in, for all intents and purposes, they're quite similar and their effectiveness is at 95%. When we are now talking about Johnson & Johnson, they use an adenovirus. They've weakened the virus as their mechanism, not a fat layer, but they have a, vac- a virus that's, been, that's not able to infect you as their vehicle. 
It doesn't mean the, vir the vaccine is any um, less effective, even though it's at an effectiveness of 75%. That's no reason, or 72%, that's no reason to not receive that vaccine when the option is, is, is offered to you. So the decision about which is better, which is not, there are numbers. Yes, 95 versus 72. But you may have already received the flu vaccine, which was a 50% effective and you're happy today and it's helpful for the community. And our goal is to be vaccinated by the next available vaccine that becomes available to you because they're all effective in us achieving that herd immunity. Folks that, folks that try to find out, um, have any of you um, gotten the vaccine? And uh, was there a, a preference? Or I guess, Dr. S Sinclair, you just answered that question. You took yes. what was available, but have you all gotten the vaccine? I have. I received the uh, Pfizer vaccine, first dose, and the second dose uh, 21 days later. What we know, because Advent Health has vaccinated all of their um, all of their medical staff, all of their healthcare workers, and uh, all of their um, essential employees that have um, direct or indirect patient contact. We've also uh, vaccinated our community, many of our affiliated physicians, as well as their uh, employees within their offices. Um, I would say after the first vaccine, I had some soreness in the shoulder at the injection site, which 80% of people have and chills that evening, which again, about 20% of people have chills. By the second vaccine, all I had 21 days later was the sore shoulder, but we know that the side effect profile doubles by the second dose. So headache, myalgia, which are muscle aches, and joint pain, even low-grade fever is not uncommon after the first dose, and it becomes even that more common after the second dose typically lasts a day or two and it's completely gone after that. And that's a normal response. It's almost as though your body is, is developing that, that inflammatory uh, reaction that it really should have with the natural infection. So it's a normal phenomenon. And within 48 hours, it's completely subsides. Some people have more severe side effects, but no reason to not receive the vaccine at all. I haven't received the vaccine. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I'm waiting, but I'm, I'm lower down on, in the pecking order because I'm not actually um, engaged, engaging any um, infected individuals. I'm sort of working on a vaccine, but I'm not actually um, dealing with infectious material, infectious subjects. But I, I would say, you know, that there's even the more severe um, adverse events, that's really the anaphylactic, the, uh, the allergic responses. There was an interim um, data set that came out um, in January. Six, six million, after six million people in the States had received their, their first immunization. And the rate of severe reactions, and we're talking about anaphylactic allergy, allergic reactions, was between 2.5 and 10 per, per million. 2.5 and 10 reactions per million. These are severe reactions. And if you think about risk and benefits, and, and for me, this is a, sh a shocking statistic, but one in a thousand Americans have died as a result, as a result of COVID, one in a thousand 
and the risk of getting an adverse reaction is maybe five in a million and nearly one in 12 Americans have tested positive for COVID. And okay, most, most will be, um, most will have mild or maybe asymptomatic, but there are potential long-term effects that um, Dr. Sinclair has talked about. So when you, when you really consider the, the risks and benefits, a reaction, an anaphylactic, anaphylactic reaction can be dealt with on the spot. That's why we stay um, at the clinic for 15 minutes or 30 minutes to see if you have an anaphylactic reaction. The chances of getting that are, are, are very, very rare. And yet the chances of getting COVID are very, are very high compared to that. So I would say we have to consider the risk benefit ratio uh, and, and make a decision. I'm not here to tell people to take the vaccine. Um, I just try to let people know that this is the scientific information. These are the risks, these are the benefits. You need to make a choice. I uh, thank you, Dr. Bird. Uh, I am here to tell people to take the vaccine. And I say that if you're pregnant, talk to your doctor, but there's no reason uh, from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology that you should not be uh, that you are not a candidate for the vaccine. If you are considering pregnancy, again, talk to your physician about that. If you have food allergies, there is no reason you should not receive the vaccine because you're allergic to fish or allergic to eggs or allergic to uh, peanuts. There is no preservative in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine and the Center for Disease Control does not include them as reasons to not receive the vaccine. Um, there are very few reasons to not, again, as I mentioned before, anaphylaxis, as Dr. Burt mentioned, the rate, as he mentioned, you'd have to vaccinate 500,000 people, 250 to 500,000 people, in order to have one case of anaphylaxis that requires epinephrine, within minutes of receiving the vaccine or a trip to the emergency room for epinephrine for the anaphylaxis. In Central Florida Division of Advent Health, we vaccinated over 35,000, 37,000 employees and community members and had no cases of anaphylaxis requiring epinephrine after administration. Again, extremely safe and I'm not uh, a, an employee or paid in any way or, or required to say this from any of the manufacturers, but the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which are available to many of you over the age of 65 on this call, there are, there's no reason to not, after it, if you're concerned, have that discussion with your physician, but there's no reason to not receive the vaccine for fear of side effects, for fear of anaphylaxis, which is extremely rare, and it's not related to any allergy that you have right now, um, this is the way that we will control this virus, get back to normal life. And I'm not just saying that to get back to normal life. That is to, in a safe way, in a safe way. David, I want people to be vaccinated, but I'm yeah. not an MD, you're an MD, yeah. so you can tell people to be vaccinated. I can't. I, I, I only say that not, not, <laughs> not to oppose No, I know. You, I'm only joking. Say, I feel very strongly, and I must admit, so do Greg, I, thank, so do you I. thank you for saying that. 
The two vaccines, and even Johnson & Johnson that's coming, they are under emergency use authorization, which means because we're in a pandemic, the Food and Drug Administration, with the data that we have to date, is authorizing their use. It had, they have not undergone the full review by the panel to say it is mandatory or required. I'm sorry, the lighting's changing as the sun's setting here. Um, so I do not and would not say you are required to do it. We are, I am strongly recommending that you consider doing it under emergency use authorization. And I wanna make that clear. It is not a requirement from the government or from anyone, even Advent Health as an employer, that you be vaccinated. Um, it's a strong recommendation because the data is convincing and because the studies have shown it to be effective as well as safe. Wow. Listen, our time, our time has gone, and uh, we, we kind of let it go a little longer because we know this has been a very um, oh, yes. important topic. Uh, the chat is just filled with questions. Um, as you saw, we put up the fact that some of the questions asked later on in the show had been addressed even earlier in the show. And so I, you know, we're just going to advise that you can rewatch the show to, to maybe get your questions, to get some of the things straightened out um, that you have. Um, I would even say we need to advise you um, the information you heard in this show is not to replace you having a conversation with your doctor. Please. Please do not take what we say here and just run with it. Uh, it is here to give you uh, some uh, opportunity to share, um, um, to have some, some of your questions answered. But get with your doctor. Call them up. Call, Monday morning, give them a call and say, hey, I heard. You know, do, what, what can I do? What should be? Make sure you talk with your doctor so that you will have the, the person who has your, your full medical um, understanding to be part of your decision making when it comes to the to the vaccine.